Hey everybody, so we're back here with part two of Agro-Industrial Society and its future by our friend Will. If you haven't listened to or read part one of this essay, go check that out now before you listen to this. It'll give you a much better understanding of what this is, what our man Will is trying to do with this project, and uh, we'll give you context for what we're going to talk about today. Only other thing I'm going to mention before I just go ahead and get stuck into this bit is that Will will be referencing right off the bat some diagrams that he's written up that you can go ahead and find on the Google Drive link um, in the description. So go ahead and check that out. Um, I would recommend that you look at it while you're listening to this or while you're reading it, and that'll make everything that we're about to talk about make a lot more sense. So enough for me, let's get to part two. I'll include a photograph of the sort of thing that I mean here. This is an old drawing, but it gives at least an idea of what I'm talking about. This represents the smallest system I consider to be practical, where you can adequately contain all of the fundamental systems of cultivation in one integrated system. This assumes a totally flat land, something like you might find in Iowa, with access to groundwater, good soils, and a climate that can support most varieties of vegetable and fruit. The bold lines represent roads. It's divided into four quadrants, each with a full section measuring one mile by one mile, so the entire system is contained within four square miles. The layout itself is arbitrary. It's just a geometric pattern that is convenient to organize it with the best possible pathing. A real landscape might contain areas unsuitable for cultivation, but this represents just a best-case scenario where the entire area is arable and continuous. This was made to get a general feel for the relative proportions of each system, using realistic practical scales of cultivation for each of the fundamental systems, and to get an idea of the population density that's reasonable in such a system. Just to be clear, this is in no way a proposal for something to be built, though if it was built, it would probably work pretty well. This is an abstract model of a fully integrated agricultural system with a contained community, and it serves as a beginning point from which abstract mathematical models can be constructed, so I can daisy-chain mathematical descriptions of subsystems together to formally represent their interactions. So, this entire system has been drawn to scale. Each system it contains has been scaled so that it fits within the system of land surveying that was adopted in many of the growing lands here, called the Public Land Surveying System. This is so they can fit inside of the established road networks and the property divisions as they exist in most of the country. This is where you get your fundamental property divisions, the full section containing 640 acres, the quarter section of 160 acres, 40 acre plots are these divided into four, 10 acre plots are these divided into four again, and then finally, another quartering gives you your one hectare plots of 2.5 acres. A hectare measures 330 feet on each side. For reference, each grid square in this drawing represents a quarter hectare, 165 feet by 165 feet. These are divisions of survey townships containing 36 square miles, measuring 6 miles by 6 miles. The land didn't start out that way. This was something that was done to it. I don't know how well you'll be able to make all this out, but in the center you have a circle of squares that represent the housing area loosely based on the Euroblock system, able to comfortably house around a thousand people. Each square sits on a hectare of land, and each housing unit contains four L-shaped buildings that each contain four two-story connected houses with paths leading between them to a central courtyard. In their corners, there are unoccupied buildings for community spaces, things like libraries or community sewing rooms, corner shops, that kind of thing. These houses have complete floor plans made for them and are all totally identical. They represent what I see as the practical size limit of a family home. They contain four bedrooms, one on ground level, each with ensuite bathrooms to give each some basic degree of privacy so that they can initially be used as co-living housing while the entire community is being built up. Eventually, I want to make detailed drawings of their framing systems 
and from this give a full account of the actual lumber and construction materials along with all of the objects they contain inside. This is so I can get a general idea of the requirements for domestic production and the raw material supply for the housing. I'll try and attach a drawing of the floor plan. This is about the 50th iteration of it, and I stopped there because I just couldn't manage to improve on it. There's still some problems with it. The ground level living room is a bit cramped, but that's about as developed as it's going to get because I'm sick of working on it. Technically, this floor plan is from several years later and is slightly larger than the agricultural community drawing shows, but the blocks still end up being pretty close to a hectare in size once the road network system is added in. There are lots of reasons a Euroblock system works well in the agricultural context like this that I won't go into here, but it provides natural light and access to fresh air for a high population density while keeping road networks very efficient and compact enough that it is still very walkable. A standard Euroblock system is very different and could also be used. Normally the ground floor contains shops and there are two or three levels of apartments above this for housing. A drawback of this system is a rather excessive reliance on stairs. Elevators only make sense in taller buildings with more levels, so it's a bit cruel to the disabled. Modern building codes also make these systems illegal to construct these days, but they still remain widespread in many older European cities. Barcelona would be a good example of this style of construction being incorporated into a planned grid system. There are of course many other alternative housing systems that could be used, but something had to be chosen for the purposes of modeling. The pinwheel-looking things are blocks of vegetable and fruit plots that have moving greenhouse systems that roll on casters along metal pipes. In this case, they can cover four different fields, though three could also be used. There are four one-hectare plots in each, with a space in the middle to place compost and mulches. Each hectare field contains 32 plots. Each plot is about 30 feet by 60 feet in size, and it's made up of several beds. Half of these pinwheels use the bog standard bed width of 30 inches with 18 inch pathways that's typical in market gardens and works well for most of the smaller fruits and vegetables. The other half uses wider 42 inch bed systems still with 18 inch paths. This is because the standard bed width is too small to effectively space tomato plants in a lean and lower trellising system. 30 inch beds are also too small to provide space for many of the larger plants like melons or larger brassicas. The movable greenhouses cover seven of the narrow beds, or six of the wider beds, using the same size structure. The same trellising system is needed for cucumbers, another very important greenhouse crop, and it would also allow for some more of the obscure crops like true cantaloupes to be grown under cover, otherwise impossible to grow because they require too long of a growing period in most places. I've never seen this multiple bed width system done. It's almost impossible on the scale of most of these gardens to operate on but it would solve many of the fundamental problems with this growing system. One of these pinwheels would be considered an extremely large market garden by most people's standards. A single hectare is typical. Normally, a stationary hoop house would be used for this that's a bit larger. 30 by 96 feet is typical. The main problem with this is that the crop rotations end up being far too short because a small number of crops are very valuable and people want to use their protected cover space for these. Soil-borne diseases like Fusarium or Verticillium wilt end up building up in this way, and all of the disease-reducing benefits of the greenhouse, like keeping rainwater off the leaves to protect against fungal disease, are lost. Being able to move it from plot to plot extends its benefits over multiple plots, giving you a much longer cool season in the spring and fall that's extremely important for places, like here, that are far from water, so you have more rapidly challenging weather. In the spring especially, this is a huge advantage, because the rate of plant and insect pest development is temperature-driven, so these become decoupled and you don't get cabbage looper damage on the brassicas. It gives you the ability to build in much more varied and longer rotations, but the winter phase is where it really changes what you can do, because you don't have to sacrifice space in the fall for establishing the winter-hardy plants, they can just be covered immediately before the threat of frost. 
This is essentially like having a massive cellar that can preserve the plot of the crops, except the plants themselves are living and will continue to grow. Certain root crops like carrots, parsnips, and beets, grown in this way through winter, will also develop much higher sugar levels because plant sugars function as energy storage to be used for growth during the spring. These pinwheels are spread out away from each other to reduce disease and pest spread, and to help maintain isolation distances for plant breeding work. This system is large enough that you can effectively maintain a relatively high number of varieties of each species while still having large enough breeding populations to select from. The breeding system is loosely based on the metapopulation theory of Richard Levins, where individuals are being periodically exchanged between communities to help keep genetic diversity high. This entire system is effectively a massive plant breeding facility. Varietal trials are conducted to see how they respond to local conditions, and then the most promising populations are developed over generations into locally adapted cultivars. This entire process is directly incorporated into the cropping system itself so that it can be performed at scale. In this system and at this scale, the crops will essentially self-select for phenotypic traits that develop well in the locality, and this is important because phenotypic trait expression is highly influenced by environmental conditions, a phenomenon well known to plant geneticists, but not to farmers. The diversity of cropping types and systems isn't just done to provide the full range of what the area can produce to the local population, it's also so that the entire range of possible crops can be systematically bred, including specific populations for use in system extension systems. By calculating the area between the temperature curve over the season and the base temperature of the species, below which development slows to nothing, essentially an integral, growing degree day measurements can be taken at specific developmental stages for every variety. Technically, there is also a maximum temperature, usually taken to be about 86 degrees Fahrenheit, above which the growth rate does not actually increase, and when this is accounted for in the calculation, it's called a modified growing degree day system. This allows the temperature-dependent nature of plant developmental rates to be better accounted for because plant development is a thermodynamically driven process and is a better method than days to maturity for estimating harvest dates and windows. A similar measure can be used to model the heat gain and retention of a greenhouse, or even the heating or cooling requirements of any sort of structure. This helps with the timing and design of the complex and tight crop rotation sequences in the moving season extension system. When the same method is applied to insect development, you can estimate pest emergent dates as well, so that mitigation can begin before the populations become large enough to be obvious, because by that time it's too late to intervene, things have already spiraled well out of control. All of this can be derived directly from weather data, and historical weather data can then be used in a probabilistic model to estimate the probability of specific harvest dates of each crop as the season progresses, accounting for the conditions the plant has experienced so far. This information can also be used to plan out in advance complex staggered harvesting sequences, even between season extension systems and the unprotected main crop for each species. More accurate data can be obtained through direct air temperature measurements in the field, as well as within the greenhouse systems themselves, with data logging temperature sensors recording information throughout the growing season. This data can be compared to what the greenhouse heat gain and retention models would predict for the actually experienced weather conditions to further refine these thermodynamic models. This modeling system has obvious applications for scheduling local food processing operations and food transport between regions, even before the food itself is harvested. Using previous season's yield data and the nutrient content of crops and their residues, the nutrient removal rates can be estimated for each bed in this system. 
This information is combined with estimates of residual nitrogen and other minerals from previous fertilizer applications to estimate the required fertilizer application rate. Periodically, the beds would also need to have soil tests performed to check macronutrient and micronutrient levels that might need to be adjusted. By solving matrix equations that represent nutrient contents of various manure, amendment, and compost mixtures, and mixing these together in the central square, in the center of the pinwheels, the specific nutrient ratios required for each crop can be applied to the beds, keeping the nutrient content of the soils in perfect balance. I'd also like to be able to work biochar into the subsoils during an initial double digging process when first forming the beds so that drainage through clay layers or plow pan can be increased and the biochar can absorb nitrates that leach beyond the crop root zone, allowing longer rooted systems to then periodically bring these back to the surface. Once the soil composition has been adjusted, these bed systems are pretty much maintained in the same manner that it sounds like you're using in your no-dig system. Try to attach an Excel file that has a very rudimentary fertilizer calculation system so you can see how that works. There are many more things that need to be built into this calculator, but it shows the basic guts of the system and is a very good example of how even a simple vector space representation can be used to regulate complex systems of this kind. I've labeled the inputs in green and you can play around with the ratios of different compost application rates and fertilizers there or change the crop removal rates and residual nitrogen levels to see how balancing these systems can be done. The nutrient values of various organic fertilizers that you see in this model are, by the way, actual nutrient values taken from the literature or available products and the prices given are actual market prices. When you see negative values for the required fertilizer mixture quantities, it means that there is no way to mix the fertilizing mixtures in a way that will provide the crop with the right proportions of nutrients. When that happens, the ratios of nutrients in the fertilizer mixtures need to be adjusted so that they are more heavily weighted towards the respective nutrient they are meant to supply to the system. The yellow areas show the vectors that are being used to represent the nutrient ratios present in these fertilizer mixtures. Matrix equations are solved to determine the ratios of these mixtures required, and then it calculates a scalar value that multiplies the vector components in such a way that the weight required of each can be found. The size of the bed itself can also be adjusted. It uses this information to calculate the growing area in terms of acres, because that is the typical way that fertilizer application rates are calculated, and this is fed into the entire model to determine the required nutrient inputs for the crop. It also calculates the price of each input, and this can be replaced with labor time value. The information it provides can then be multiplied by the number of beds in a plot planted to that crop to calculate the amounts of amendments that will be required for a plot to maintain nutrient levels over a growing season. The basic idea here is that compost mixtures can then be made based on these values and concentrated nutrient sources can then be mixed into this compost to prevent nitrogen volatilization losses and then this enriched compost is applied evenly over the surfaces of the beds. In the center of these pinwheel clusters, there is a ring of four rectangles. Each rectangle is five acres in size and contains four blocks of open field bed systems with each bed 120 feet in length. These are essentially the same as the previous system, just larger without any season extension, though I suppose you could put some low tunnels in there for winter onions. These are the main season crops that grow best in a bed system, but don't require protection to produce reliably. Many of these are grown using transplants, so they surround two very large 200-foot by 500-foot gutter-connected greenhouses, 20 bays each, with areas containing benches and automatic misting systems that serve as heated propagation houses that also serve the movable greenhouse rotations. 
In the summer, these can be used for curing onions or garlic for storage. Some areas of these greenhouses would contain hydroponic systems for growing salad greens, especially summer lettuce that would otherwise get too bitter and bolt in the heat. This is only really useful for shallow-rooted plants like small greens. Almost anything else requires too much inert media or water capacity to provide rooting space that's hard to maintain at scale in a system like this. It's worth doing for salad greens, though, especially because it makes them easier to harvest and keeps the dirt off them so they're much easier to wash. This could be combined with an aquaponic-style reservoir system containing live fish. Salad greens are about the only thing that could be adequately fertilized by a system like that, but it would probably be simpler to just use a standard organic hydroponic setup. A gutter-connected greenhouse like this is much more efficient to heat in the winter than any other kind. They're also tall enough that the heat can rise to the top in the winter, and they hold heat absorbed during the day better throughout the night. The length of the bays is limited to about 200 feet for reasons of ventilation, but bays can be added to the sides without much of a problem, and they become better at all of these things as they get bigger. Their temperature swings much more gradually than a stationary hoop house, and you don't have the water and weed infiltration problems along the sides like in a hoop house. In a hoop house, the curved pipes along the sides restrict movement by limiting available height, so it can't be used well as a walkway, and if beds are placed there to better utilize the space, they're inconvenient to tend unless their width is reduced by half. These really become much more useful beyond the scale of the system. If you can use combined heat and power to generate electricity and do district heating, waste heat from power generation or industrial processes can then be used to heat these in the winter. They're also essential for any sort of nursery operation where you're doing garden plant propagation on a large-scale rooting of hardwood cuttings. One interesting heating system for these would heat water in a boiler by running exhaust gases from a charcoal kiln that produces biochar for the fields through a heat exchanger so they can then be heated by wood. The Gene Payne-style large forest brushwood composting systems with anaerobic digesters in the center could even be used for supplemental heat, especially for a simple seed-starting greenhouse. Bordering this central cluster of larger bed systems and gutter-connected greenhouses along one corner is a quarter-circle arc of five one-hectare fields, one in each quadrant for a total of 20 fields. These are for crops that don't fit into the normal annual crop rotations because they require multi-year rotation cycles, specifically strawberries and garlic. Strawberries in particular are extremely hard to grow reliably in an organic system like this. They're susceptible to fungal disease, and once that builds up in the soil, it's very hard to get rid of without dangerous soil fumigation. For this reason, they're given a 10-year rotation cycle, though they occupy three full years of this and bear fruit in their second and third year. That leaves a seven-year period where you can get two garlic crops in with a three-year space in between them, preferably with a perennial legume cover crop like white clover and a year of cover crops before and after the strawberries that will build up as much organic matter as possible and reduce weed pressure. A mustard cover crop in the spring, before planting the strawberries in early summer, will provide some protection from fungal wilt disease if well macerated and turned into the soil. The long cover cropping period is necessary because both crops require extremely high organic matter in the soil for water retention and drainage. Since there are 20 fields in all, four one-hectare fields of strawberries are bearing fruit every year along with four one-hectare fields of garlic, or 10 acres of each. There are also a couple of one-hectare plots in each of these large bed system clusters that have 100-foot-long beds for perennial berries and asparagus with center-to-center -center bed spacings of 10 feet. These are spaced far apart to reduce disease spread, especially because they contain raspberries, blackberries, and boysenberries that can infect each other with otherwise unnoticeable dormant viruses. 
They can also include things like grapes, blueberries, gooseberries, black or red currants, or elderberries, and all of these are usually given the same 10-foot bed spacing, so they can be incorporated into a very long crop rotation sequence, interrupted periodically with flower beds to allow any disease buildup to dissipate. There are eight of these plots in all, or 20 acres total, though a good chunk of this would be taken up by flower beds. You're not really limited to this space for them. The orchards where the fruit trees are located can also house berry bushes and canes, but it'd be nice for some of them to be near the intensive gardens. The insect populations in these crops are totally different from what you'll find along the annual crops, assassin bugs in particular, like the blackberries where I am, and they'll host a lot of other predatory insects, especially if flower beds are included, that the parasoid wasps like. In our asparagus patch, the fleabane daisy takes over the plot in the early fall each year, and the air just swarms with various predatory flies, lacewings, and a wide variety of hymenopterans. Wildflowers like this could be intentionally incorporated to provide nectar sources throughout the year near the annual plots. Surrounding the central area of intensive vegetable and fruit bed systems, there's a ring of 10-acre plots, 28 in all. In this drying, eight of these are occupied by dry lots for pigs, with deep straw bedding and rotational cover crop pastures, each with 12 sows and a boar. Each year, there's a spring and fall farrowing period. Each sow has eight piglets per farrowing season, so each 10-acre plot houses 100 pigs twice a year, or about 1,600 pigs total per year. This is about the population size that would need to be required for a single purebred pig breed to be maintained long-term. Near each pair of pig plots are windrow composting systems, four 100-hectare plots for rotational pastures for chickens and turkeys, and a good-sized orchard for providing apple pomace for supplemental feed for the hogs. Plum curculio, a weevil that is a common orchard pest, will lay eggs in unripe apples, causing them to drop early, a phenomenon that's called June drop. If hogs are allowed into the orchard during this time, they will eat these apples and prevent the larvae from developing into adults, helping to control their population. After apple harvest, they can also feed on windfall apples by letting them in again during the fall, or collecting the fruit that's fallen and bringing them into the pens. They're also given whey from cheese making, along with damaged fruit and vegetables that can't be stored and scraps generated from the food processing systems. Their manure and straw bedding are collected and used in vermicomposting systems, or as a nitrogen source for the composting windrows. I'm not going to be able to go into all of the details of managing or planning out an orchard. It's been about 10 years since I've tried studying it. I have a lot of orchard systems drawn out somewhere around here, but I'm not going to try and find them. I have no idea how useful they are, but it's a fascinating subject. That kind of stuff is highly specialized and very regionally specific. In general, you want to be near water to have any sort of consistent yield, especially for many stone fruits. That's why, at least in the U.S., you see most fruit tree production happening near the Great Lakes and along the east and west coasts. Apples and other palm fruit trees you can grow reliably in much more varied climates, but you still need to match specific varieties with your location and conditions, and the insect pests and diseases will vary regionally. Perennial plants are a lot harder to work with in many ways than annuals. Diseased or insect damage can destroy many years of work, and pruning requires a lot of experience and forethought to do well. You don't experience the entire developmental cycle over a single season, so it takes years to gain experience, and there's a long time delay before you can even see the results of your actions. I do include tree nut production in the orchard category as well as grapes. I think it's stupid to pretend grapes are their own thing. If you would like a fairly comprehensive take on fruit-producing orchard systems that at least attempts to incorporate ecological thought, Michael Phillips's The Holistic Orchard is an absolutely beautiful text, and I remember being very impressed with what he'd put together there. 
If I was to plant and manage an orchard, I'd pretty much just be testing his methods and have a wide range of experimental varietal trials to determine how well each variety grows in an area and how they handle disease and pest issues. The other 10-acre fields contain field crops that are best grown in rows using mechanized harvesting and are impractical in bed systems but aren't needed in huge amounts. These are mostly fresh vegetable row crops like potatoes, sweet potatoes, green beans, fresh peas, or sweet corn, that kind of thing. They could also be used for crops like squash, melons, or determinant tomatoes to give more space so that more varieties can be grown, or for specialty dry bean and other pulse row crops. Ideally, these would have highly diverse rotations with periodic breaks to help build up the organic matter and allow nutrient cycling to catch up with the removal rates. These rest periods could easily incorporate pastured poultry into the rotation to provide extra fertilizer and help control insect populations. For instance, blue hubbard squash attracts squash bugs particularly well, and if included into a chicken pasture in spring, can divert some of them away from the squash fields where they will be eaten by the chickens. These fields can also be used as test plots to trial varieties used in large-scale row cropping systems, or simply to provide space for variety trials for the vegetable and fruit breeding projects in general. There is a circular gap on the inner side of this ring of 10-acre fields, and this is just permanent pasture with white clover being periodically reseeded to provide a nectar source for bees and extra pasture space for the various kinds of poultry to be rotated through. Along this entire inner circle near the annual beds, you'd place perimeter strips of trap crops like sunflowers and sorghum combined with insectary plants like buckwheat, and the same would be good to do on the outer edge of the 10-acre plots. These attract insects like stink bugs to them, and the flowers feed parasoid wasps in large numbers that will prey on them, forming a swarm of predatory insects that act as a barrier that any insects moving from other fields into the intensive bed systems must pass through. If this is done on the outer edge of the 10-acre plots, two concentric rings are formed that act as lines of defense protecting the entire systems from traveling insect pests. The specific mixtures of plants used in this can be adjusted depending on the particular insects you're having problems with. These also provide the larger scale field crops with an extra level of protection against insect damage. This can be augmented by adding similar diversity strips between the fields that can target common insect pests of each crop type. Surrounding these along the outer corners of the entire system are four groups of five 40-acre plots that are dedicated to dairy pastures incorporated into a lay farming system. Half of these fields are covered with perennial pastures with a mixture of grasses, forbs, and legumes. Two plots in each quadrant are for active pastures with grazing animals. These are divided into eight 10-acre paddocks in a conventional rotational grazing system. One plot is planted to pasture each year and left to grow for a year to allow time for pasture establishment. One plot has pastured pigs on it to allow them a clean county system of swine sanitation to be used for farrowing pigs that was developed in the 1920s that greatly decreases the death rate of piglets due to parasites that can build up in the soil. This allows fresh pasture to always be available for farrowing that hasn't had any pigs on it in the last 20 years, and since it will be broken up for field crops in the following year, the damage pigs cause to the pasture doesn't matter. Pigs actively root and destroy pasture lands, but in this case it's beneficial and provides manure to the pasture that will help it break down after it gets turned under. This is then planted to a corn silage, soybean, corn silage, dry pea, oats rotation, followed by five years of alfalfa before being planted again to pasture. In this way, supplemental feed needed for dairying can be incorporated directly into the pasture rotation without disrupting the position of barns and milking parlors that are located in the empty L-shaped space at the inner corners of these fields. The manure and bedding generated from housing the dairy animals can be collected and used in the vermicomposting system to provide worm casings for the vegetable beds. 
In this system, two of these corners are occupied by dairy cows, one has dairy sheep and the other has dairy goats, allowing for almost all varieties of cheese to be able to be produced on site. In the dairy cow rotations, wool sheep can be added so that the sheep follow the cows in the rotation, which can be useful for disrupting parasite cycles by providing dead ends by exploiting the fact that many intestinal parasites are species-specific. This is about as small as you can get in a system of this kind. It would be much better for quarter sections to be used instead that surround this entire farming system with 40-acre plots occupied entirely by wool-producing livestock but that would increase the total size of the system to 9 square miles rather than 4 square miles, and this is meant to represent the smallest feasible, fully integrated agricultural system. This large expanse of fields that surrounds the vegetable and fruit growing areas is necessary just to generate the biomass that's required to maintain the organic carbon content in the intensive bed system. There is no inherent reason animals need to be used in a system like this. The entire system is fundamentally plant-based after all, but these fields would still be needed just to provide composted plant matter to the rest of the system, and so not much is really lost by feeding these plants to animals. By having animals in the system, useful bacteria are maintained that have symbiotic relationships with these species, and the nutrients in the plants are conveniently concentrated, which makes it easier to hit specific nutrient ratios in the very complex fertilization system being used. The decomposition process is also accelerated, and it would allow for the mass cultivation of dung-loving mushrooms, like button mushrooms or the portabella and cremini mushrooms, that are just variations of the species that require animal manure to grow, or at least are conventionally grown using such substrates. I'm including as many types of domesticated animal as possible in this system, mostly for the sake of completeness, so that it can provide as many ingredients used in traditional cookery as possible. The same basic system could, though, be modified in various ways to omit elements, but I'm not sure that there would be much of a benefit that would be gained to doing this. It would at least be much more difficult in some ways to accommodate the needs of annual crops that need very rich soil to thrive, though it would also simplify the other complex aspects of the systems by just eliminating them. I haven't really discussed mushroom cultivation much, and won't go into much detail about it here. That subject is complex enough, and it would require its own 50-page long text to describe adequately. It should be noted, however, that this growing system mass-produces all of the fundamental substrates required for large-scale production of all of the major mushrooms that lend themselves to indoor cultivation. The spent substrate can be broken down in the windrow composting systems to provide very nice mushroom compost with its own desirable properties. In areas with the right climate, outdoor mushroom cultivation can also be done and at an even higher level of sophistication and complexity. Even mushrooms that require symbiotic relationships with tree roots, like chanterelles along with truffles, can be inoculated into tree roots grown in greenhouse systems before being planted, and all of this can be directly incorporated into a system such as this. I have a long history of experimental indoor mushroom cultivation and have studied commercial systems of cultivation and culturing techniques of depths. It is a long-standing interest of mine that predates my study of plant cultivation, but this is well outside of the subject at hand, so I won't go into that further here. This drawing omits row crops like cereal grain, oil seeds, dry pulses, and fiber crops that would ideally be grown in very large fields, anywhere between 40-acre and 160-acre quarter sections. Ideally, these would be located along the periphery of a system like this, but this drawing assumes that in an early stage of development, it would be too difficult to control uninterrupted expanses of land large enough to directly incorporate these into the rest of the system. These instead exist as isolated clusters, distributed throughout the local area, operated either by individual families or much smaller communities than exist in the clustered village system that I'm describing. 
These row crops are incorporated into an integrated crop livestock rotation using a lay farming system similar to the one that I described before, where the row crop rotation is periodically interrupted by perennial pasture. These can accommodate any sort of grazing system into them, including dairy if they contain a small-scale cheese-making facility or are close enough to the clustered villages for milk trucks to transfer milk to creameries located there. They would be more suited, however, to wool production, grass-fed meat production, and pastured poultry or pastured pig systems. They would have local grain bins or smaller storage facilities for temporary storage of their harvests that are then bought by trucks into larger long-term storage systems like small grain elevators located in the clustered villages. These cluster villages operate the milling and processing facilities that are required for each crop type and act as distribution points where raw materials and intermediate products are transferred between the localities. To overcome the highly centralized slaughterhouse system that currently dominates all meat production and to comply with food regulations, these clustered villages would need to operate what are called mobile slaughter units, specialized refrigerated semi-trucks that can drive onto a farm, perform slaughtering on-site, and bring back the whole or half carcasses or slaughtered and processed birds. The clustered villages would need local butcher shops where the carcasses can be hung and cured, butchered, and then flash frozen with blast freezers to minimize the size of ice crystals in the meat to maximize its quality when thawed. Directly incorporated into the system are charcuterie operations that produce dry meat like ham, bacon, salami, etc., along with any other prepared meat products like fresh sausage, jerky, pastrami, corned beef, etc. This also provides a ready supply of bones for stock production, and eventually bone meal as well as blood meal for supplemental crop fertilization, animal hides for tanning operations and leatherworking, and all other animal-derived raw materials. Lay farming systems of this kind aren't encountered much in the literature, but they have a lot of potential advantages that are often underestimated. No-till or minimal tillage systems can greatly reduce a lot of the fundamental problems with row crops cultivated by conventional tillage practices, and they can increase soil organic matter levels and retain moisture in dry land row crop farming by leaving crop residues on the surface of the soil. Without long-term rests, however, the rates at which nutrients are being removed from the fields is problematic, and annual crops that are produced by these systems lack the extensive root systems that perennial plants are able to develop over multiple years of growth. If very high levels of organic matter are going to be maintained in a row cropping system throughout the entire soil profile, I have a hard time imagining this being accomplished without multiple year rest periods of perennial plant growth taking place. If organic matter and nutrients are being removed from these fields to maintain soil qualities in other more complex systems as they are in the system that I'm suggesting, these rest periods become even more important to balance the organic matter levels in the row crop system, which is why I'm assuming a lay farming system wherever that is feasible. Lay farming allows perennial polycultures to be incorporated into grain production in a way that makes physical sense. The duration and relative proportions of pasture and row crop rotations can also be adjusted as needed to suit the requirements of each locality. They have many other potential advantages. They can have beneficial effects in maintaining groundwater quality, limiting insect pest populations, and reducing the spread of weeds in row cropping systems. There is a very good paper that was published recently that I would encourage everyone to read called Role of Lay Pastures in Tomorrow's Cropping Systems, a review that goes into a lot of detail on this kind of system and is one of the very few in-depth papers that discuss this sort of things. There was also a very nice agroecological modeling paper called 10 Years for Agroecology in Europe that is the only agroecological proposal I know of that incorporates a system like the one I am most interested in. I'm not really taking any of these ideas from these papers, I only recently found them, but they're very good resources if you'd like more information about lay farming and some of the implications a system like this would have if it was applied on a national or international scale. It's certainly not the only good system, but it's a useful idea that should be explored more than it is, and it has a long and interesting history. 
There is a fundamental problem that must be solved by any proposal for an alternative system of agriculture, how grain production is going to be accomplished on the large scales that are required to provide a stable supply of wheat, rice, corn, oats, barley, rye, beans, peas, lentils, broad beans, chickpeas, etc., that today, and for all of human agricultural history, constitute the fundamental staple crops, along with high-calorie vegetable root row crops, that provide the vast majority of calories and protein to people in every region of the world. Often, the answer given is, especially by people influenced by permaculture, because cropping these systems must be grown as monocrops to allow them to be mechanically planted and harvested, they must be entirely removed from the human diet or grown exclusively in complex polycultures that will require planting and harvesting to be done by hand. They will insist that perennial crops can replace the role annual row crops, or even annual crops in general, play in the human diet, and so allow these to be phased out completely or regulated to a small percentage of food consumption. I'm not entirely convinced that imposing a false dichotomy of monoculture versus polyculture, or annual versus perennial that can't be clearly defined onto all human agricultural production and then restricting food production systems so they conform to this arbitrary requirement, is the best way of designing a food supply. Monoculture is a problematic term usually defined as growing one type of crop in an area of land. It could refer to a row of cabbages as well as entire landscapes of genetically identical continuous corn operations. I understand why it's used, but the reality is much more nuanced. There are cropping systems where monoculture may be the best option, and I think row crop rotations, done in a responsible way, are one of those situations. There are systems of grain cultivation that may include other plants in them. I know there are people growing old rice varieties like Carolina Gold that claim that they are using historical polyculture systems that provide better quality and yields than would otherwise be possible. There are also systems of strip cropping where different row crops are grown side by side so that they can be harvested by combines but aren't as susceptible to insect damage. Those sorts of alternative systems should be looked into and might have advantages. I don't know enough about them to really say, but I don't think this attitude of monocultures are always bad and polycultures are always better is especially helpful. A cropping system needs to be considered based on its own potential advantages and disadvantages using actual experimental data, and as far as I can tell, we just don't have that data yet. If polyculture systems have been developed that make sense in an area, and they often do make good sense, especially in more tropical areas, then by all means utilize those systems. It would be very interesting to see what could be done along those lines, and where knowledge has been preserved from systems of that kind that have been developed in the past, I think that knowledge is important to preserve and draw from. It is naive, however, as advocates of permaculture often do, to pretend that quote-unquote food forests can replace all of human agriculture or are in all cases more labor-efficient and space-efficient than any other system. We also need systems that can operate outside of forested environments. They are not some kind of ideal ecosystem type that all biomes are just hoping to attain someday. Forests exist in environments with enough water and with climates that are suitable for trees to grow. We need systems of cropping capable of producing every species that humans actively cultivate. Our goal shouldn't be to arbitrarily remove plant species from human agriculture. That being said, there are all kinds of interesting agroforestry practices that can incorporate food production into a forested area. It's specifically the system proposed by permaculture and its underlying philosophy I have a problem with. The systems that they are usually suggesting as a good design are impractical and sometimes actively ecologically harmful. They contain bad ecological theory, they use words from ecology like guilds and change their meaning, and they overstate the advantages of their system and misrepresent all other systems. Agroforestry is beyond the scope of what I'm talking about in this paper, or have enough knowledge to talk about in depth, but there are contexts where it can be used as the primary food production system in a region, and I think those are very important to develop. It also has applications for forested regions that aren't well suited for primary growing lands, where you still want some local food production to take place. 
silvopasture systems where you are combining grazing areas with tree production, or alley cropping where you grow food crops on small scales between rows of trees in a plantation, are both interesting ways of doing this. Agroforestry is properly an entire category of agricultural production, along with forestry more generally, and both of these are just as important to me as the sorts of growing systems that I'm talking about here. I'm especially interested in coppicing and hedgerow management, for instance. So, just to be clear, I'm not at all claiming that these are competing agricultural systems and that any of this is inherently better. A lot of people in permaculture and other esoteric branches of alternative agriculture often do approach things in that way. They will literally claim that their methods can take any environment, including deserts and grasslands, and transform it into a lush garden. Anyway, back to the agricultural collective that is to transform human productive capabilities and pave the way for the glorious communist society of the future. <laughs> Between the large bed system clusters, there are four rectangles at the north, south, east, and west with roads running through them. This space is left empty for workshops, wash pack facilities, refrigeration and freezing facilities, and food processing buildings. A large amount of the work involved in any sort of food system isn't just growing the food itself, it's post-harvest handling and then processing it into finished meals. You'll need to be able to cool the food down immediately once it comes in from the fields and provide the right temperature and humidity conditions for it to store well until it can be shipped out or processed. For some crops, this can be done by immediately immersing them in cold water baths or dripping cold water over them before they are put into cold storage. For crops that can't handle getting wet, you'll generally use forced air cooling, where you have a refrigerated cold room with fans that circulate air through holes in crates or boxes that the plants were sorted into. They are then moved into walk-in refrigerators and palletized, and you'll need multiple large walk-in refrigerator systems with different temperature and humidity conditions to properly store the full range of crops. These refrigerated rooms also need to be set up so that everything can be easily moved around using pallet jacks. Doorways need to be flush with the ground, and pathing needs to be wide enough to easily maneuver. The cold chain system also needs to have built into it a loading bay to allow refrigerated trucks to be easily loaded and unloaded. This can be done using simple cellars for some things. You're basically making an artificial cave that will give you something close to the right conditions, and then adjusting the humidity and dropping the temperature to where it needs to be. Monolithic domes made of reinforced concrete using foam insulation that are covered in a water impermeable layer of bentonite clay and then earth bermed would be especially good for this. They're strong and cheap to build, and will last a long time, as long as a good drainage system is used to prevent water from building up around the concrete. These will mostly be useful for bulk storage of crops that can store for months at a time, at relatively high temperatures, where you only need to periodically go through them to control the rot. They can also provide the conditions needed for storage of wine or beer, for large-scale vegetable fermentation, for mushroom cultivation, for curing meat, and can serve as cheese caves. For crops that need temperatures just above freezing, or those that can only store for very short periods of time, you'd need conventional large refrigeration rooms, preferably an entire block of them connected with a common cooled hallway to prevent losing cold air when loading and unloading. These systems become much more energy efficient as they increase in size and are one of the reasons vegetable and fruit production needs to be done at the sort of scale I'm describing to make any real sense for producing for exchange. This requires a very complex logistic systems to coordinate everything well enough to prevent food waste. There is a constant threat of losing huge amounts of labor that has gone into planting, weeding, and harvesting these things, and any decline in quality at any stage not only reduces the quality of what these are eventually made into, it greatly increases the labor involved in food preparation. What has been stored, when it was stored, where it is, how much there is of it, and where it's going, or what it will be made into, and how much is needed and when, all of this needs to be immediately available to everyone involved in the system and needs to be able to be accounted for at all times in a clear and easily understandable way. 
This, combined with the inherently unpredictable nature of food production, requires an extremely complex logistic system to be in place to handle this complexity and to be able to effectively maneuver in this system so that the food processing system can immediately respond in the right way to constant fluctuations happening in the food storage system. Furthermore, everyone involved in this system needs to be fed daily from the output of this system, and that entire internal food distribution system needs to be planned out ahead of time in a way that provides tasty meals with balanced nutrition to the entire local population. That system needs to, at the same time, be flexible enough that it can utilize ingredients that might be overwhelming the food storage and food processing systems and serve to bring the entire system into balance. One part of the logistics systems I'm trying to develop consists of taking Marx's labor theory of value equations that describe the production process and combining them with an algebraic structure, specifically an algebra over a field that represents flows of raw materials and their transformations as a series of individual batch processes. Data taken from individual processes within the system, the labor time in a shift combined with the mass or unit measurements of its corresponding input and output, is converted into average local flow rates in a discrete system that accounts for the fact that these processes have a regular duration. From the initial mass of a harvest, it automatically calculates an estimate of the labor time and number of shifts required to send it through the system, so that a sequence of labor processes can be planned out and coordinated in advance. The outputs of this raw ingredient representation system become inputs to the food processing calculation system that can draw ingredients it needs out of the larger agricultural production network. Food preparation processes, whether it's freezing or canning or cooking, are then modeled in the same way, and these outputs become inputs to the batch processes that cooking or food preservation processes consist of. This system can even account for how different durations of shifts or number of workers involved influence the flow rates within the system. This is a generalized modeling system that is just applied linear algebra and can work with any batch process so that it can be adapted to certain continuous processes, though complex continuous processes would need to be modeled using differential equations in a system's dynamic style. The same basic algebraic structure is what linear programming is based on, and if you wanted to, the entire calculation system can be fed directly into a linear programming planning system to balance the proportions of different elements in the system. It can also be fed into a dynamic representation of the sort Beer is suggesting and used for modeling, and from these models, simulations can be created. There are other applications of this. It's the basis for all flow network analysis, and Odom, an early ecologist and student of Hutchinson, had done some interesting things along these lines when he was trying to represent complex systems from an energetic perspective. Towards the end of his life, he was making a cybernetic modeling framework that described energy flows through ecosystems and economic systems as electronic circuits, though I don't have copies of his books that describe this, so I'm not sure about the details or how useful it would be. The other side of this logistic system is an attempt to create a unified recipe collection that brings together all of the English language cookbooks into one systematic database. Any source of recipes can be used, of course, but I cook from books a lot, so I'm using those. Different versions of the same basic foods are grouped together and then a sort of taxonomic classification system is imposed on them to organize all of traditional cooking into one comprehensive system. For now, I'm just trying to focus on the cooking of what I guess I'd call Southwest Asia and related systems of cookery, because a good term for it doesn't really exist. This combines the cooking of the Maghreb, the Levant, Turkey, Greece, the Balkans, Iran, and the Caucasus into a vast system that connects regional variations of similar food together. Eventually, I want to do the same for the cooking of Mexico, Central America, South America, and the Caribbean, because this is another highly developed system of cookery with related cuisines over a large geographic area with local variations. Unfortunately, most of what has been published on these countries has never been translated into English, so that would need to be done first, since I can't speak Spanish.
Korean and Indian are also cooking styles that would be especially useful for temperate regions, but the ultimate goal is to include all of the world cooking systems. Each recipe has a unique tag created by the region or book category, book and page number that will eventually be linked to scanned copies of each recipe. Each is associated with a list of all the ingredients and their ratios are converted from imperial units into grams along with the yield, and then this is stored in an indexing system as a vector with ingredients and their quantities as components. In this way, any recipe can be scaled for a specific yield and it creates a searchable database where a list of available ingredients can be put in and it will output the set of all recipes that can be made from them. If you are largely depending on local fresh produce production, this food is highly seasonal, but its production is also cyclical. This allows each locality to perform meal planning in advance, knowing from previous years what is generally available and when. If there's a glut of food of some kind, this database gives a comprehensive account of what can be produced from that food and what else is required to do this. This database is incorporated directly into the entire food processing system, so it can automatically bring in data about the time required for ingredient production and food preparation, and when combined with measurements taken while cooking, it can estimate total labor time required. In addition to this, nutritional data can be built in using a similar vector representation and fed directly into the system, automatically calculating the nutrition of recipes or combinations of recipes for meal planning purposes. It would also be very useful for home meal planning, because prices of ingredients can be easily built into the system and would allow people on strict budgets for food to get the most nutritionally out of what they cook, without sacrificing quality. I'll try to remember to attach a cookbook index and classification system of the sort I mean, but it's going to be pretty fucking rough. I need to go back through everything I've done so far to get further on with it because the format was gradually changed, but it works well enough for me to find the recipes to use. This entire calculation and planning system is then combined with an inventory system to estimate current inventory based on what processes have been done recently, then inventory is periodically checked. This can also be used to predict future inventory based on the plan that's being created and estimates of expected harvest dates and previous yields. That's basically the logistics system that I'm trying to construct so I can plan out all of the food preservation and soup cooking I do at work because those petty bourgeois fucks think they can just decide on a whim each morning what I'm supposed to do and we never have what I need to do anything. Soon these, soon those far-right libertarians will have their entire system running on Marxism. That system contains within it all the information that's required to set up a labor-time accounting system. That can run alongside the capitalist money-based accounting system that's needed for operating the system as a business within capitalism. If a cooperative existed at a national scale, like the sort of cooperative system Marx was advocating for, you could organize a separate economic structure within it that could perform internal circulation of products all using a single mathematical system, because they're fundamentally the same system, just with minor system behavior altering differences. This is all just one part of a much larger mathematical modeling system that I'm trying to develop where these local models are then combined into a national and international distribution network. Using rough descriptions of possible local agricultural communities, like the system I was showing you as an example, the full range of agricultural subsystems and the technical systems needed to operate them is gradually developed in more and more detail. From systems like that, and mathematical representations that have been developed for modeling those sorts of systems, I can slowly construct an integrated mathematical representation that can be used to model all possible agricultural systems. The technical systems they contain give me a clearer idea of what sorts of industrial systems are required to supply systems like this, with raw materials and machinery coming from other parts of the economic system, so a mathematical framework can be established for describing an entire supply chain that can function independently of the rest of the economy. 
I think building up an interlink map of such bare-bones descriptions of the productive processes that constitute the ultimate foundation of an economic system are necessary if we want to have a clearer idea of how a new mode of production might be brought about, either within existing society or in general. Now that brings me to another aspect of all this, how technological systems in general are enmeshed with agricultural production and how I think about technology as a whole. All agricultural practices are, in a sense, technical systems themselves, and the kinds of food systems people might support have built into them certain assumptions about the technical systems they think are desirable or possible to sustain. Food systems also are a fundamental element of production that in many ways influences the extent to which technical systems can be implemented and sustained in a society. These kinds of systems and the means of production more generally obviously play a very central role in the Marxist conception of society. Social relations revolving around them and interacting with them reverberate through the entire structure of society. I think a lot of Marx's ideas about technology are some of the most interesting ideas in Marxism. He was a studious student of technology indeed, and his theories on the subject are the most comprehensive view of technology I've ever seen. He's often portrayed, falsely I think, as having an almost unhealthy infatuation with technology or being a technological determinist where technical systems are relentlessly driving society forward independent of human will. How technical systems that have been developed are to be used to provide us all with free time that will allow us to pursue our interests and enjoy each other's company should be a central aim of this project of collective emancipation. That is the highest social goal they can be put towards, not how do we maximize the number of products that we can obtain from a certain quantity of labor time. Are the products we are producing things that serve to achieve this goal, or are they so much superfluous baggage that merely drains our energies and occupies our time without satisfying our true desires? In our society, technology is not being directed towards these ends. It is being directed towards facilitating a cycle of senseless growth that leads to our collective destruction. In the society that we are trying to develop, technology needs to be able to be utilized in such a way that it can achieve its intended purpose and then stop expanding so it doesn't needlessly consume all of the limited resources available to us. If we are to achieve this, we need a well-thought-out theory of technical systems that describes what they can really do, what their fundamental limits are, and what we can know about their inherent structure. For some reason, this has been almost completely ignored by Marxists. It's also being ignored by everybody else, but it actually matters if the Marxists are ignoring it, because they're the only ones who have a clear theory of the social relations that perpetuate this vicious cycle of accumulation that not only might plunge us into a global catastrophic breakdown, but it is actually currently doing so. They need to stop moping about just because a wrong-headed authoritarian faction of them who managed to gain local power ended up losing it because their leadership wasn't up to the task at hand. Okay, that's all we have for you this week. Um, that ended on a spicy note there, which we like. We love it. Um, but next part, we're going to be getting into actually building technical systems and how that can be done. So be sure and tune in when we put the next part out. Um, that'll probably be in two weeks' time. Um, as always, you can find the full essay at the Google Drive link below, as well as all of the spreadsheets, the papers, and all of the diagrams referenced in today's reading. Um, and I highly suggested you check all that stuff out, um, especially the diagrams. That'll make what we talked about, as I said before, much clearer. If you want to know anything more about this project, shoot us an email and we'll put you in touch. So until next time, thanks for listening.